Hello, Kate. How are you? Hello, Edward. I am fine and dandy. How about yourself? Um, I'm okay. Um, so, I have already talked about episodes one, two, and three of Bridgerton season one by myself, but um, we kind of, I, I, I kind of got a little ahead of myself and wound up um, just watching all of the rest of season one because I guess I was enjoying it. So I wanted to, since you have seen season one, I guess three times now watching the last most recent time with me, um, I figured I might as well bring someone else on because the last couple discussions by myself were pretty short and get an actual female perspective on the show, which is officially now designated as a bodice ripper. Um, <laughs> it might be PG-13, but there was a lot of sex and sexy times in it. So I guess I'll ask you for your general thoughts on season one as a whole, especially because you didn't get to talk about the first three episodes. And then we can go through and read a brief synopsis for episodes four through eight and maybe talk about some particular points and um, ideas and thoughts for, uh, for season two. So what did you think of uh, season one? Yeah, I thought it was it was very enjoyable. Um, I am somebody who enjoys period dramas anyway. Um, I enjoy Jane Austen. I enjoy uh, you know these sorts of Regency costume dramas. Um, so this was from the start very much up my alley. Um, so I really enjoyed Bridgerton. I thought that the story was engaging and. Um, the costumes, you know, there, there's some controversy about the the costumes, but um, I what, thought that they were. What controversy is there? I have not yet heard. Ah, about whether or not they are historically accurate. Um, historical accuracy for period dramas is always a hot topic. Um, so when people saw the trailer for Bridgerton, um, they kind of freaked out and was like, "These these costumes are not historically accurate. Those colors would not have been worn by the Featheringtons." And where where were you seeing some of this? Is this just on Twitter or? Yeah, a lot of it is, uh, was on Twitter, on some of the um, some of the groups that I'm in, you know, on Instagram and and um, that sort of thing. Um, I follow okay. a lot of content creators in this space, so um, I know um, in the introduction I had um, talked about I'm I'm very anti uh, the Regency era dresses with the really really high waistline that goes right um, below uh, the bosom, mm -hmm. and I think it one of the reasons that the um, Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice is so rewatchable and um, really enjoyable is because it was set almost like 20 to 30 years earlier and everyone has the late uh, 18th century, so like late 1700s uh, dress going on and I really think that that makes it work a lot better because I just don't, I can appreciate all of the costumes in Bridgerton and especially all the work that went into them, whether or not they're historically accurate aside. But I just think everyone looks so ugly in all of these dresses. I just hate the way that the um, the waistline is so high, and I really just can't get behind any of it. And it, it yeah. Well, it doesn't help that. I mean, I, I agree with you in, in the general silhouette with the, the waistline, that empire waistline right underneath the bust. Empire waistline. Empire okay. waist, excuse me. No, no, um, no that's, that's what you said. I didn't. I, I called it a Regency ah, line, okay. so I wasn't sure what it was, but you're saying it's an empire yes. line. So. Yes. Okay, thank you for clearing that up. Um, I generally don't think that's flattering on a lot of people, but it also doesn't help that a lot of these dresses had that waistline not underneath the bust line, but across it. 
um, especially poor Penelope, um, had a lot of her waistlines directly across her bust. Um, uh. But um, but no, I mean as as a whole, I thoroughly enjoyed this uh, this this season, as evidenced by the fact that, as you said, I have since watched it three times. Um, and you haven't read the books before you uh, before you watched, right? Right. I, I went into this knowing exactly nothing. Okay. Um, had you ever heard of the series before? Since you've read some um, historical dramas like this, I know you're really big into Outlander. Um, but had had you ever heard of Bridgerton before? I guess the series was announced, and it was a big deal as um, Shonda Rhimes's first um, big uh, foray as part of her Netflix deal. I hadn't actually, so I'm considering going back and and starting those books but I was not familiar with them prior to the show. Okay, and do you have any desire now to go back and read them, or has the TV show been enough and you have enough to read and it's not going to be the same thing? It's always hit or miss for me. Um, You know, watching adaptations and then going back and reading the books, you know, there are always going to be differences, and, you know, Netflix has committed to at least one more season. So do I really want to get into the books only to only be able to watch two seasons on Netflix. Um, so I haven't quite come to that that conclusion yet. Okay, okay. Um, it does sound like this is what everyone needed at the end of 2020. Yes. Um, and that we're still in the middle of uh, COVID as we record this um, in towards the end of February uh, 2021. Um, so I guess, what did you like most about season one and the way the story wrapped up, although I guess those are two different questions, but what did, what did you like most about season one? I thought the characters were engaging and believable. Um, you know, I, I always think that period dramas, one of the big reasons that I feel like they resonate with modern audiences is you can see yourself in the characters. You can see yourself, you know, having tea with certain characters, you know, where they're believable and they're not in a far off place. Um, so yeah. You identify with how ridiculously obnoxiously wealthy all these people are. Very and much how so. They go to part- I, I remember I'm making this comment a couple times when we were watching it is like, they go to a party every single night. And I think I was thinking to myself, like you, you can tell why the French revolution happened because this, this aristocratic class, excuse me, um, just like parties every single night, lavish outlandish parties. Um, and I guess it's sort of like the uh, wedding industrial complex. It's the aristocratic coming out. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. It's the coming out party industrial complex, um, which I think they hint at in um, Downton Abbey, which is another one where they talk about mm-hmm. how everyone is employed through the aristocracy and everything, but it's just so obnoxious. And um, I think there's the one episode where um, the Featheringtons the dad's secret about the gambling comes out and what the girls going to do about dresses for parties and the mom uh is horrified in the same way that uh teenage girls moms are horrified when it comes to prom dresses or even if you grow <laughs> up in um an upper middle class family where it's like well we we can't wear the same dress twice like that's, that's impossible but it's even more so because i i don't i don't remember i feel like we get quoted a price at one point but I have to imagine that some of these dresses, I mean, modern, modern day, how much do you think some of these dresses would, would go for? Especially because it sounds like 
or it, it, it didn't necessarily seem like you were buying them off the rack. It, they were almost created completely from scratch. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, those dresses would be worth thousands of dollars in today's money because not only were they made completely from scratch to the individual woman's um, measurements, they're all hand-sewn. You don't have the sewing machine at this point. So, you know, it's it's the the designer, it's the, the sewist sitting there with a needle and thread doing all of this and all of those details. And so, yeah, th those those dresses are extremely expensive. Was there anyone that, uh, well, I guess first, um, if you want to share, um, how much did your senior prom dress cost in high school? Oh, maybe a hundred dollars. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and were there any dresses that, also to uh, fact check, Apparently, the sewing machine was invented by Elias Howe and Thomas Saint in England in 1790. <gasps> so it is not inconceivable that Madame Frenchwoman Delacroix, Delacroix may have had one um, by the 1830s, which is the Regency era that I guess the show takes place. I'm probably blanking 13. on it. 1813. 1813, okay. It's not inconceivable um, that they would have had one, but was were there, were there any dresses that particularly stood out to you or that you particularly enjoyed? I loved all of the blue dresses in the, uh, the final episode at the Hastings Ball. Um, blue is my favorite color, so this is pretty on brand for well, me. Where they planned absolutely <clears throat> poorly and it just started raining in the inner courtyard <laughs> and then everybody just decided to go home. <laughs> Because Daphne was enjoying the rain. <laughs> Not that, that 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 was a little that, that that seemed a little anticlimactic, especially for the last ball of the season. But um, whatever, I guess I'll just let it go. Yeah, but it looked pretty. Um, and what about the men's costumes? Was there a favorite jacket you had from this season? I guess I I enjoyed the the Duke's velvet jackets, um, where you know when he was going to the. The, the nicer balls and he's got his very fine very um properly cut uh what are very very clearly velvet jackets um so it looks very high-end i'm not sure how i feel about velvet i feel like velvet had its moment and if anything should be resigned to bedrooms and not uh the public eye but this is also 1813 so that's completely different as an elder millennial i share your feelings on velvet <laughs> Um, so, how did you feel about, uh, spoiler alert, I guess, if you're watching this, hopefully you would have, I mean, if, if anyone is listening to this, I hope that you will have watched the show first, um, but how did you feel about the way the season ended? Yeah, with Daphne giving birth. I thought it was a nice way to close it up. Um, they, they sort of did a time jump, I guess, because right. the, the season wrapped up. And you find out who Lady Whistledown is. And then it sort of ends with that reveal. Um, and then there's sort of like an epilogue where it right. jumps the nine months ahead where Daphne uh, gives birth. Um, but how did you feel about Lady Whistledown? I'm really glad that they revealed that at the end of the first season. Because if they strung us along for multiple seasons on that, I was going to go crazy. And I was going to have to like Wikipedia that. <laughs> Um, and figure that out for myself. I actually called it early on, so I'm really proud of myself because I never get those things. Um, so I was glad that they uh, that they revealed that at uh, at the end of the season. So the, uh, 
the time jump was nice just to kind of close that loop because my understanding is each season is going to follow each book <clears throat> so the first book and the first season is Daphne's story and then it'll move on to her brother for season two that's interesting um yeah I'm not sure how well that might I mean it's it, it's an interesting concept um and then that the main characters Daphne and the Duke wind up becoming almost supporting characters to the rest of it um which which brother is it supposed to cover in the next season Anthony. I, i'm sure there are listeners who are like uh we read the books you don't know what you're talking about but which <laughs> which one is anthony is he the eldest one with yes. the good the okay. wanker uh, yeah i was gonna say i did not care for his character and i really wouldn't be able to watch an entire season just based on him and his toxic relationship with um the uh, opera singer so we're gonna have to see about um about that for season two well apparently he's got a completely different love interest netflix has announced the casting oh okay so um and what do you do you you have any insights or reactions to the casting and what season two might entail then yeah apparently she is feisty i think her name is kate so that is is, the name of the character yes okay the, the character um so I'm looking very forward, and I, I really hope this is the case, um, to Anthony getting his butt whipped by a woman that he falls in love with, because as you note, his relationship with the opera singer is very toxic. He's a very whiny character who's been handed you know, everything on a silver platter, and not to say that people in that position can't have their problems and you know it's a difficult position to be you know at that the the top of society you know et cetera, et cetera. but uh he also kind of doesn't really make smart decisions so i i am hopeful that we can get him uh, that we can see him wisen up and mature in season two okay okay um i'll i'll, I'll admit that it took me longer than i would have hoped to realize at least i think that Lady Whistledown is a play on Whisper Down the Lane and that things change as the game Whisper Down the Lane gets played. So instead of Whisper Down, it's Whistled. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making that up. I'm sure Whistledown has some significance that I'm completely missing. Um, but I never even I, thought of that. I, that. That came to me in a dream. Um, but, okay, then we can go ahead and just talk about each episode individually, just if you have any thoughts. Um, so episode four was An Affair of Honor. Um, again, premiered on December 5th, 2020, along with all the other episodes. Writing credit goes to Abby McDonald, and the directing credit goes to Cherie Folkson. Um, the brief synopsis is, Daphne receives a stunning gift from Prince Friedrich, but soon courts scandal at a ball. Eloise searches for clues to Lady Whistledown's identity. Um, do you remember anything about this episode in particular? That was a really she, gorgeous necklace. Where she gets the necklace, right? Yeah. And then she just leaves it! She just leaves it outside the ball, and then she goes running off, and it's like, do you know how much those diamonds are worth? Well, um, this was all after the, um, the, was, was that, this, well, this was during when she was, the whole will they, won't they, and she was freaking out about the Duke, right. and whether or not they were gonna, and then she wasn't gonna sit around and wait for him, I think, which was part of the conclusion of the previous episode. Um, she said she wasn't gonna sit around and wait for him anymore, so then she started accepting the advances of our Austrian prince, um, it looks very Disney, very Disney Prince. He does. He does. Um, and there were lots of hints and misdirections as to Lady Whistledown, but this was the first time that I thought that, um, who is, who is the redhead who it was revealed that it was her? Penelope. Penelope. I, there were a couple looks and reactions that occurred in this episode in particular that I definitely thought, um, 
uh, hinted at her uh, being Lady Whistledown. Um, I have some notes written down about they keep going back to these boxing matches and the Duke working out his feelings. Um, this show is very, very thirsty. Um, <laughs> and it's like it's definitely a bodice ripper, as we see from the next couple episodes, where they really the, the Duke and Daphne really tear into each other. Um, but it's incredibly thirsty, and they just get this guy shirtless as often as possible, which I don't, I don't um, disagree with. I mean, you got to do what you got to do, but it did take me a little by surprise, and it was very, very noticeable when they started getting into the sex that it was all very PG thirteen, and I think there were a couple butts, but there were no nipples, um, there was no excessive nudity. I think if this was HBO. Um, there definitely would have been some Game of Thrones level nudity, mm. but do you think they were trying to um, keep it PG-13 to be able to get that tween and teenage audience that I'm sure they have metrics on that we're going to mop this stuff up? Yeah, probably. I mean, you broaden your audience when when you don't bring it up to Outlander level or Game of Thrones. I prefer the Outlander uh, analogy because that's a healthy sexual relationship, but um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, if, if I was a, a if I was in development at Netflix, I absolutely would keep this a little less on the scandalous side. And Shonda Rhimes also comes from network TV, so she can push the envelope, but she's not quite at that HBO stars kind of kind of level. So okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and this was the oh yeah. So why why is Daphne? I, this is probably an unanswerable question. Why does Daphne feel claustrophobic? from um, Prince Friedrich's necklace. It just seemed like that was something that, like, would have been appropriate if she had some history with him or something, and they were... I, I don't know. It, it just seemed a little arbitrary that she she kept getting claustrophobic from that, or was she just getting heated thinking about the Duke and sex and desires in general? But, like, like you said, she kind of threw it away, which didn't make a whole lot of sense, but... Do you mean when she got the necklace or when she wore it at the ball? I guess when she wore it at the ball and then that's when she took it off and threw it away. Yeah, because he was very clearly working his way up to a proposal. And I think she just didn't know how she was going to react. So she didn't even want Prince Friedrich to actually make that proposal to, to even propose to her. Um, because obviously she's in love with the Duke, so obviously she wants to marry the Duke. So what is she going to do when she has the opportunity of a lifetime right? Prince Friedrich seems like a really nice guy. He seems decent. He's, um, you know, clearly very interested in her. So this is a really amazing opportunity for Daphne and her family, right? You know, we, we can't uh, forget the, the fact that as the first daughter to marry, she's setting the stage, you know, as they say in, in the show, that she's setting the stage for the rest of her sisters and her brothers as well. Um, so if she was put in a position where she had to either say yes or no to the prince, that would put her in a really rough spot because clearly she just wants the Duke. So I can totally see her in that position. The, the prince is about to propose and she's just like, I can't deal with this. And she just runs out to get fresh air. So, um, and I guess this is the third episode with our Austrian prince. I think I mentioned this uh, when I was just talking about it on my own. Uh, considering every, what we were talking about with the, with the costumes and this basically being a costume drama and then putting so much money into the production budget for that, I don't understand why he traveled all the way 
from the continent in Austria and only has one outfit with him because <laughs> he wears the same uniform every single time with the same bland um, iron cross like as a zipper basically and then he has one ornamentation and I would expect as a prince he would be more highly decorated and he would have brought uh, uh, military uniforms or formal wear for each ball um, so I was a little confused about that um, I don't know if you had any thoughts I assumed it was a uniform. It looked very military, so... But, like, Prince Harry and William have, like, eight different uniforms that they wear depending on what's going on. That's true. So, I, I was a little disappointed just coming from that perspective. Right. Um, and then the end of the episode is when Daphne and the Duke kiss, and then it gets all heated, and they decide her her, her brother and the Duke decide they're going to duel... As much excitement, many duel is literally the the, the note that I wrote. Um, I, I I thought it was very well done. I thought they they did a really good job building up the suspense, and then this and the beginning of episode five, I thought were actually very engaging. Um, I thought they did a really nice job. The music, the cinematography, building it up, and making you feel uh, on the edge of your seat. I definitely wasn't sure what was gonna. I mean, maybe because I went in not knowing anything about the show, I felt like. The Duke could have gotten injured. I felt like her brother could have died. I It was very believable to me. I, I didn't get the impression that these characters had to continue until the end of the season. Maybe that's just my own naivety. But um, episode, season f- one, episode five, since we're now talking about it, was The Duke and I, uh, written by Joyce C. Mitchell, directed again by Sharif Folkson. To fend off rumors about their garden escapade, Simon and Daphne must make a personal appeal to the Queen. Marina's wedlock scheme dismays Penelope. Um, right, so they eventually work out everything at the duel. What did you? So, what did you think about um, the whole duel scene? I know you're very partial to Hamilton, <laughs> and every time duels come up, there's always the joke about Weehawk and Dawn. Um, but always. what did you think? I know you made a comment about everyone just seems to have dueling pistols, even though dueling had been outlawed for so long. Right. Yeah. Right. There's there's that. Dueling's illegal but everybody has dueling pistols. Um, I thought that the duel was believable. I thought that the way that they set the stage to why the two men dueled in the first place, I thought was was well done. Um, it wasn't just sudden, manly, macho, I am now angry at you, we must now fight to the death in order to settle our affairs of honor. Um, there was a real reason behind it, and it made sense as an audience member. Um, so I thought that, that they did a good job setting that up because they, they set up the world where the women have... The, really, the only choice the women have is to marry well. And depending on where you are in the social stratosphere determines what marry well actually means for you. Um, you know, for Marina, it's uh, George Crane's brother, but for Daphne, it's either a prince or a duke. Um, and that's really the only thing that they can do. And even the slightest hint of a rumor of scandal really could set tongues wagging and ruin somebody's chances. Um, so I thought that, that it was a, a, a good, the, the lead up to that scene was well done, I thought. Okay, okay. Um, good world building, if you will. Good world building. This was also where they went back to the Queen and introduced that 
I assume it's supposed to be King George III, which is the whole point right. of the Regency period, mm-hmm. has basically Alzheimer's or some type of dementia. Um, I'm not really feeling all the cutaways to the Queen and her story and her things, and I think it's appropriate when like she summons um, Daphne's mom and they discuss over tea um, the the relationships, and when they go, the the Duke and Daphne go to the Queen to ask for an expedited marriage license. I think all of that obviously makes sense, but the scenes when it's just the queen and giving her backstory, I, I feel like it's really dragging the pace of the showdown. There's already enough um, characters that they're following, and I really don't want it to fall into the Game of Thrones trap of just too many characters, mm. too much stuff to keep track of. I I guess I understand what they're trying to do, and it's, it's obviously been spoken about and discussed at length, the um, diverse, non-historical casting... Um, but they have enough other not that they have enough I don't want to make it sound like that but there are other characters that they can explore and I think the Duke and his relationship with is she his aunt or just his mom's friend the um the, the woman that is kind of his, oh Lady Danbury yeah yeah what's, what's her relationship to him again I believe she was his mother's best friend just best friend okay because I enjoy her character she's she's very reminiscent of um Maggie Smith from um, <laughs> from uh, Downton Abbey right but I don't know. I, I just felt like some of the backstory around the Queen, unless it gets developed, and I, I, I guess it's going to be carried over into future seasons, but I didn't really see it going anywhere, aside from just building out her character for no particular reason, when there was enough already going on. So I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Um, and just a quick note about the, the ahistorical casting. Um, there are theories that Queen Charlotte was, in fact, black, that she, she did descend from... <clears throat> um, black royals in the the portuguese family but um yeah i i mean i can see what you mean about adding in another subplot and having there really kind of be too much going on to really keep track of to really keep a coherent storyline i thought that the queen's relationship with the king I, i don't think it took up too much time for me personally and I think it did a good job setting up kind of the, the dichotomy, right? Because you've got the younger crowd who are trying to find their life partner. And then you have the, um, the, the older married families. You have, uh, you know, Daphne's mother, you know, who's a, a widow. You have the Featheringtons who are excruciatingly miserable and hate each other and ruin each other's lives. And then you have the king and the queen where they're still together, they were happy, but now their um, their marriage is in is, is is in trouble because he's so ill, right? So they're they're not they don't have that. Um, it, it's the for better or for worse, right? So as you've got the younger generation trying to find who they're going to pair up with, you have different um, different outcomes, right? In in the older characters. So, but I, I can see where if you cut out her story, you really wouldn't lose, you wouldn't lose a whole lot. Okay, okay. Um, and then the end of the episode is they get, do they get married in this episode? I think they do, right? Because then they start going on the carriage ride right. to his estate and he informs her they have to stop at the inn right. overnight and that's when we get the um sexy times let me teach you the ways of the sex 
um, which was a little, I, I don't know, it's, it's, I feel like the trope is a little tired. It, it feels a little weird in 2020, 2021 that she's so green and really knows absolutely nothing. But I understand it's, it's from the source material and probably somewhat accurate, at least. I find it a little hard to believe that she's so naive that in the next episode or the episode thereafter, um, she has to ask her, her handmaiden exactly how babies are made that like she hasn't figured it out at this point just from gossip and friends i mean i remember being young and having just some you know kid be like hey man you know where babies come from <laughs> and everybody talking about it so i find it a little hard to believe that she really has no idea about about anything uh you, you have more experience in this history and time period and obviously a, a women's perspective do you have any thoughts about this yeah, so I was reading an anecdote on the anonymous web, so take this with a grain of salt. Um, what, what do you mean anonymous web? I was on Reddit. Oh, oh okay, okay. Somebody was telling a story about a book that they Is had. Is this on R. Bridgerton? Or, no, no. no. Oh, um, somebody mentioned that they once came across a book uh, for married women that had a chapter wrapped in paper on uh, menstruation, and that um, once the woman read it, you know, they should rip it out and burn it so that their husband didn't know anything about their bodily functions. Yeah. Um, and knowing a little bit, very, very, very little about the, the birth control controversies in the early 20th century and how that information was so tightly controlled, it actually really doesn't surprise me that she's that naive. Now, on the flip side, I've since read that part of the kind of Puritan, uptight Victorian era was in response to a lot of sex in the Georgian era, in the Regency era. So as a woman of the upper crust, I do find it believable that she could actually be that naive. But as the show does in fact show, there was certainly lots of sex going around. Right. I guess, I mean, it, it doesn't seem conceivable. This is all, these are all things that can probably easily be answered with, um, uh, internet research that I should have done and will probably have to supplement uh, this this discussion with but it just seems somewhat unbelievable that only doctors know but I mean so obviously you would have doctors at this time um, I, I'm actually not sure when the, the the germ theory of medicine would have started but probably around this time uh, with Louis Pasteur well he was I guess late 1800s and yeah France. I was gonna say yeah he's 19th but century you have um, midwives who know how everything works right I mean, all the adults around all of these characters, around Daphne, know how um, sex and babies are made. And also, I mean, f just farmers know because they have to deal with getting livestock. And so I just find it very difficult to believe that if she's read the Bible and she's been well-read and she's interacted with other human beings, that she's so, so sheltered that she really has no idea. But um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's true. Yeah, I think it's probably more an issue, not so much of knowledge being available, but having it be comfortably spoken of, right? We get that scene with Daphne and her mother where her mother can't even bring herself to describe any of the marital act. It's just, do you remember the dogs we had? And then nobody told them anything, and then suddenly there were puppies. Uh -huh. So I suspect it's just more of a deep, 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 deep discomfort discussing any of that. So, okay. rather than the, the lack of knowledge. Okay. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to say about this episode and the start of Sexy Time? Obviously, the sex continues into the next episode with Honeymooning. 
Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the sex and how you think it compares to something like Outlander in the next episode. But I guess... Okay, so the next one would be episode six, Swish, written by Sarah Dollard and directed by Julie Ann Robinson. Um, on her honeymoon, Daphne discovers just how misinformed she is about the physical aspects of the marital bed, and Colin comes to a decision about Marina. So, thoughts? Poor Colin. Well, poor Marina. Um, I guess I have a lot of thoughts on this episode. Um, I would love to hear yours first. <laughs> Throw it at the... Well, this is where they finally arrive at Cliveden, and there's lots of the honeymooning, and... The younger brother winds up getting engaged. There's tension between Daphne and the housekeeper. <coughs> Excuse me. And then Daphne and the townsfolk when there's the um, the pig competition. and she. Oh, right. I, I, I was getting some serious vibes from Daphne's situation of the trope of, like, when you have a new boss come in, or I think the best analogy is when, like, a new principal gets hired for a school... And they're like, okay, well, I'm going to come in. Things are going to be completely yeah. different. I'm going to know all about this. <laughs> and the principal's going around and doing things differently. And the rest of the administration and all the faculty is the same. But the principal has this grand idea to how to make things different. And they come in with their motivational posters, almost like the opposite Ted Lasso, because everyone believed in Ted Lasso and he was doing the right thing. But Daphne definitely was not prepared for respecting the uh, main caretaker and respecting the townspeople and she just keeps making missteps and so that's that's a trope that she eventually uh comes together and kind of rallies and sort of learns her place it wasn't really explored too much but you do get the hints of the storyline that she she comes to almost um almost similar to what was it tom in downton abbey yeah where he yeah. starts off as the irish revolutionary and then they silly mold him into a good tory uh conservative by the end of the show <laughs> Yeah, and when Tom comes into the family, he's like, you don't know anything about how real people live, and he educates them. He, he does. Um, oh, so I still don't like the soundtrack in this show. Oh, really? Um, the first thing that I remember doing this, where it's the modern music overlaid to a period piece, was the Leonardo DiCaprio um, Great Gatsby film. That had modern music. I think there was a whole album with Beyonce and Jay Z, and I it just really takes me out. I don't know if it's because I listen to a lot of classical music during the day while I work, and I feel like I'm very familiar with a lot of the pieces that uh, filmmakers put into uh, period pieces like this. And so when I hear something that's just an instrumental version of like a pop song, it just takes me out. I it, it just doesn't do anything for me and it, it's really distracting I guess is the biggest thing it, it, it never complements any of the scenes mm, that's an interesting take um, I personally feel the opposite um, but I, I also in there are movies that I enjoy that take that trope and, and they, they go with it it has to be done in a certain manner I feel like to work um, you know you, you have a Knight's Tale in what, 2001, 2002, something along those lines. Um, and they use Queen uh, in, in a couple of key scenes. I don't think I've seen A Knight's Tale since okay. it came out, but I know that people have still, it's probably on Netflix. I think I yeah. saw it recently, so I should give that a try. Um, and I think the um, Kirsten Dunst, Marie Antoinette does something similar, but I, I actually haven't seen that movie. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay, I know um, what you're talking about. So I thought that the fact that they did string quartet versions was a nice touch so that 
so that you get the Regency era kind of vibe, but at the same time, it's recognizable music, right? Because this this is Shonda Rhimes. So you're going to have a built-in audience who may not necessarily um, be looking for the same kind of thing that, that you may look for in, in other, you know, historical period dramas. Um, so I thought that, that, that it was done reasonably well, but I can totally understand um, how that might take you out of it instead. Okay. So this is also the episode where we find out that it's not that the Duke cannot bear children, but that he's just very, very awkwardly pulling out every time uh, he climaxes. <laughs> it made me very uncomfortable. I was very confused as to what he was doing at first and why he rolled over, and then I understood. But it just looked really, really awkward, and it, um, I don't know. It's, I, I think the sex is really, really awkward in this show. And um, healthy, toxic relationships aside, I thought that, well, I don't want to say that I thought I, the, the sex was better in Game of Thrones because it really wasn't. It's, it, everything was just toxic about the entire show. Um, but I guess you you had mentioned Outlander, mm-hmm. and I don't know. It just seems more believable or in Outlander. But this this almost seems almost ABC Family level of like it's it's thirsty and yeah. intense sex, but it's still PG thirteen. Yeah, it's all and faces it, and like no nudity. It it, it kind of makes me uncomfortable almost how much they're in people's faces while they're doing it. I don't know if it, it's it's kind of almost awkwardly intimate, like eyes wide shut. But I don't know. It, do, do you have thoughts about Outlander and the sexiness of Outlander versus the sexiness of this show? Yeah, Outlander's much more explicit. There's there's a lot of nudity in Outlander, and they don't shy away from filming sex scenes. Um, I would agree that this is much more family friendly. Um, I think the whole thing about the the duke always pulling out you want to talk about a lack of sex ed the the odds that that will work 100 percent of the time i'm pretty sure there are a lot of uh families around the world who might be able to tell you that no, it it's not gonna work 100 percent of the yeah, time but so, I, I think it could still be pretty effective i mean you just gotta be careful yeah um this is not to say though for anyone listening um this is not any legal or sexual advice uh please always consult a physician and uh <laughs> please practice safe sex at all times all times so I, I think we already touched on oh so this is i had written down a note that i had started to question the whole lady whistledown thing and because what's what's the younger sister's name who's obsessed with finding out who it is eloise eloise so eloise is still freaking out about it and trying to figure out who it is and but there how how do these pamphlets get printed because I know we're jumping ahead now to episode 8, which we already discussed. Okay, so, as I was saying, I don't understand how Whistledown even gets any of this done. Because she would have had to have... if I guess if she herself is going to drop off the manuscript to then be printed into pamphlets, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand why she doesn't have like a servant or somebody go and do it for her. Because she has people driving her. So the people driving, um, what's what's the character's name again? Penelope. Penelope. The, the, the people driving Penelope, they're either random bros like a taxi or they're her family's carriage. Either way, they have to know if it's the middle of the night and they're driving this girl to um, a print shop that probably something is going on because everybody seems to read this pamphlet. So if she's going herself and she's dropping it off, 
first of all, I don't think she has to because if she's just dropping it off, she could have anybody do it. And then having somebody else be in on it is the same thing as the driver being in on it. So, but if she has to hand deliver it to the printer, I have to imagine that people would be hitting up this printer to know who it is because at this point the queen's private detectives already know that it gets dropped off in front of this printer and that this is the printer who, who creates the the pamphlets so why wouldn't you just go to this guy and offer him a whole lot of money there's no way that he's making enough money off of this is he getting paid to print all these things is he taking credit for it because obviously even if he's not putting like a watermark or something on the pamphlets is like printed by you know like please um check out my uh gofundme page for my soundcloud <laughs> dj side project or whatever he's he's self-promoting there's all the paper boys who pick it up so they all know who's printing it so at some point it shouldn't be that hard to track all this down and figure it out so the whole thing just seems completely unbelievable that she's kept it a secret for this long by the way that she's doing it do you do does am i making sense yeah i mean there's certainly a history of anonymous pamphlets um and there are plenty where you know we still don't know the authors today um but this just seems a, highly ill-conceived yeah it, it does not seem well planned out on her part yeah yeah, because then, you know, would they, would she have one of her footmen drop it off? But the footmen are in livery, so wouldn't the, you know, wouldn't they be recognized? I mean, there's a whole host of ways that this could go completely wrong. Um, and for somebody as motivated as the queen, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see how they wouldn't have found that out. Where the only way where they could have found her out was somebody just chilling in an alleyway waiting for a random carriage to drive by and being like, wait, waving yeah, his walking stick. Her. And yeah. he's, he's just there by himself and Eloise yeah. stops him from catching the carriage and then he has to run after it in the mud and boots. Doesn't he have a horse? He's probably be there with a horse. Like, how did he get there in the first place? That didn't... I, I, I thought that was very unbelievable. That is some incompetence for the queen. <laughs> but, so... We'll, we'll, we'll just keep it moving at this point. We're already at yes. um, around 40 <laughs> minutes. So we can just keep it moving. Um, so the next episode, episode 7 is Oceans Apart, written by Jay Ross and Abby McDonald, and directed by Ulrich Riley. Amid accusations of lies and betrayal, a rift forms between the newlyweds, while a deception of another kind could besmirch the Bridgerton family name. So that would be referring to the drama between the middle, Daphne's middle brother, and the woman I'm, i i am terrible with remembering character names colin and marina marina is the girl who the featheringtons took in who's pregnant correct yes okay and we haven't really talked about that a whole lot what did you think about this whole side plot with i mean there's there's the featheringtons there's um the relationship with among the three sisters then there's the dad's gambling and there's marina who's dropped in on this 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 is one of the times when you can tell that the series is based on a book because it definitely feels like there's a lot more going on yeah. and each chapter you would jump to a different character and you would get more of an insight into all of this so it does seem a little condensed and a little rushed for an eight episode netflix show but the episodes are an hour and, and eight is really the new 10 when it comes to the length of a season so how how have you felt about the marina uh plot so far Marina is intent on choosing her own path. And I think it, it ultimately works out for her marrying George's brother. Um, 
you know, whether or not that's particularly happy, you know, we're, we're not really led to believe that, that that's a, a happy relationship. Um, I mean, I couldn't help but feel, you know, if I was in her position and, you know, Lady Featherington was trying to marry me off to, you know, some nasty old rich dudes, I kind of feel like my choice would be to find the oldest one there was. And then that's just, that's an opportunity you can, you know, give him his heir and then, you know, you almost certainly will outlive him unless you die in childbirth. Um, and then you're, you're golden, you're golden. Um, so, you know, I, I have to give her character credit for wanting to pick, for wanting to pick a better life, right? For wanting to pick a better route um, because certainly nobody wanted to, you know, would want to be married um, to those older characters that um, that Lady Featherington was trying to marry her off to. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. I get it. This was also, the episode started off with the montage of Daphne, and I keep calling him the Duke because I keep forgetting his name, like we said, but his name is Simon. And every time I say the Duke, I think of Escape from New York. The Duke ain't number, <laughs> Duke of New York ain't number one, the Duke of New York. But, so Simon and Daphne have the montage of being mad at each other and she's playing the piano and he's shooting guns. Um, I don't know if it's just the montage, but it seems like it's in real time how quickly he fires that musket because it's in sync (laughs) to Daphne playing the piano. The music doesn't stop. It's a visual montage, but the music keeps playing and the music is um, diegetic music because the characters can hear it because it's the music that Daphne's playing. And he keeps just firing that musket and I'm pretty sure it's a single shot musket because his servants do not have eight other muskets right there when he keeps firing it over and over and over again at the end. But that's just a man pet peeve. I mean, Did even you... even in Downton Abbey, they've got um, they've they've got their their servants standing by with a second shot, and that was right, in the 1920s. Right, right. Did you uh, did you think it was a little uh, tried and tired, the whole back and forth with Daphne and Simon about? first of all getting married and him not wanting to get married and then the stuff about the kid and obviously as we said they do um wind up conceiving and she gives birth to a healthy baby at the end of the season uh finale but i don't know i i felt a lot of it was kind of tired but and, and it's just been done a lot before but i don't know how you felt about that i mean it never ceases to amaze me how many plot points can be avoided by characters actually just talking to each other so you know, I, I I get Simon's whole vow thing, but do you do you really get it? Or well, does it no, actually I don't. Not make any sense at all? <laughs> I don't. Because if his entire uh, point was to just make his dad mad, he already accomplished that. Like he doesn't have it. Just I, well, I, I I have a fan theory that I I have not told you, and I haven't read the book, so I have absolutely no idea if this has any merit whatsoever. Right. Um, but to to actually to to answer your question. Yeah, I, I felt like the, the exchange probably was a bit tired because it's just like, you're already married. Just bleep and talk to each other. Um, okay, so what is your uh, fan theory? My fan theory is that Simon is not the natural-born son of the Duke of Hastings. Um, oh, right. They, they definitely hinted at that. There was one point yeah. where like they said that the, um, sh- the, the female was having trouble. The, the female, wow. Um, that his, his, his mom was having trouble. The Duchess of Hastings was having trouble conceiving. And wasn't it the, the, the best friend, the lady, what's her name? Lady Danbury. Lady Danbury said something along the lines of, it's not always the woman, sometimes it's the man. Or maybe that was the, maybe that was the house 
keeper. I, I blank and I'm like, Ugh, my character doesn't make sense. But you're right. Somebody did say yeah. that, and they just kind of dropped this in real quick. Um, that right. That sh and I was thinking, oh, so maybe they're gonna do something with. They were so desperate to give him an heir that right, right, right. But of course, I asked you, what is your theory, and completely cut you off and <laughs> said it for you. But um, so please, please tell me what is your theory. Yeah. So there are at least two scenes, I think there might be a third that I'm not thinking of right now, um, where I feel like that this is hinted at. So when you have, so when Lady Danbury is first introduced to baby Simon, she says, you look just like your mother and a good thing too. So like, oh, he doesn't look like his father. Is this a good thing? Um, and then the whole scene with the housekeeper and the housekeepers, you know, talking the, the whole history of his mother couldn't conceive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I forget what, I forget what, what the, the specific story, the point in the story was, but there was some sort of change and then suddenly she was able to conceive. Um, I think there's, there must, I think there's a third scene too that I'm not thinking of that also hints at this, but it would work out nicely with the story because Simon obviously goes back on that vow to his father that kills his father. Um saying you know the the duke of uh the, the hastings line will end with me well if he's not actually the son of that mean old man then that vow was moot in the first place mm, so he didn't even so that means he's a man of his word right because he doesn't actually need to live up to that vow if that vow wasn't even necessary in the first place because he is somebody else's son but then aren't they going to be poor because they're gonna have to do the thing where you find the the next heir, and then they're just gonna be poor, and they're gonna have to give up the house. No, not necessarily. He's already inherited the title. I don't so. know. I, th I I don't know about that. I, I mean, nobody that. nobody needs to. I mean, if that is in fact the case, nobody needs to know. Uh huh. But that actually does lead us into the next episode, which is one of the cliffhangers. Um, so the season finale is Oceans Apart. Written by series creator Chris Van Dussen and directed by Ulrich Riley, the Duke and the Duchess's season-ending ball signals a turning point for their marriage and ushers in changes of fortune and fate to those around them. So we already discussed how this was the most poorly planned ball of all time, <laughs> and it just rained in the middle and they just called it quits. But what you were just saying about heirs and titles, um, the, uh, the Featherington's father uh, ends up getting hit by his gamblers mm -hmm. and the one of the big series enders is sort of how downton abbey gets started yeah, right, right, right. is they are now expecting the male heir to he was he, he was found and informed and it sounds like he's going to be coming into london to take stock of his estate now that um it, it's been passed to him right so i don't know if you've read anything you have any thoughts or theories or predictions but it sounds like, based on your knowledge, season two is going to be the same characters, but told from a different main character perspective. But how do you think all this is going to affect um, uh, what's what's going on with the Featheringtons? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I haven't read anything, so I and I haven't read any descriptions or anything like that. So I have no idea who this man is. I have no idea how he impacts the Featheringtons. You know, I kind of have to wonder if they're going to do the kind of Downton Abbey thing where bring him in and then make him a suitor for somebody. Um, I don't know if they would go so far as to make him a suitor for one of the, the daughters. Um, besides Penelope. Penelope's got her got eyes only for Colin. Um, well, Colin's probably not going to be in the next season. I mean, yeah, he's, I he's doing the tour. 
Um, bad, true. Uh, unless the next season has a bit of a time jump, but rough beat right. for that actor, man. He, yeah, he that's has true. To, he has to go. Um, uh, he has to go out for for the next season, but I, I guess we'll see. But yeah. I cut you off. Um, yeah, so we'll we'll have to see what what goes on with um with his character, but yeah, I I don't know anything, but I'm. I, I would be willing to place money that he's going to come in as some sort of love interest for somebody. So. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's assuming that he's young and attractive. If he's, you know, old and wealthy, then. Scandal. How long can they keep the hunt for Lady Whistledown going? Because even by the end of this season, I was I was getting a little tired of uh, Penelope and the Queen, everybody looking, trying to find it out. It it just there was always stakes and who is and this and that. And there's I don't think they can keep the hunt necessarily going. At some point, people are just gonna have to resign themselves to the fact that they don't know who it is and they're just gonna have to enjoy because it's definitely the uh, narrative trope that the whole show is built around is right. the narration of Lady Whistledown bringing in and sending off the episodes with. Um, Oh man, Julie Andrews as, yeah. as, as the voice. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know how much longer they can keep this up in season two. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if it'll be the kind of thing where now it's just normal and Lady Whistledown has proven that she's got the deets, um, that she's a reliable gossip. Um, so then is it just going to be, okay, well, she's... She's an, an anonymous gossip, so we just take what she says and we run with it instead of, you know, who is Lady Whistledown? Who is Lady Whistledown? Who is Lady Whistledown? Hmm. Um, I did enjoy the, uh, it was probably a previous episode, where Simon and Daphne were getting their portrait done. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was, uh, that was, that was good, uh, that was, that was good writing, and it was uh, an, an interesting, um, uh, not dichotomy, but it was it was just a nice little trope of them uh, reacting to each other and working through their problems and their relationship yeah. and everything. But yeah. yeah, that was an interesting way to to kind of approach their relationship. That that scene in particular kind of stuck out to me because you have this situation where your two romantic leads are angry at each other and they're going to be separating and. Uh, but still, when they when they lock eyes, they're still madly in love, which is kind of the same thing around their wedding, where each of them thinks that they're trapping the other person into the marriage. They're convinced that the other person, you know, doesn't doesn't love them, loathes them, you know, that they're ruining the other person's life. So you have this this unusual, maybe it's not actually unusual, but to me it seems unusual scenario where you have two romantic leads who are getting married who have already made that commitment who are already hitting that plot point but they haven't reached that point emotionally where they're on the same page and they realize oh wait no i do actually love the other person so then you get that scene where they're they're getting their portrait painted and they're still arguing about the the whole you know having a child issue and then they lock eyes and it's like oh right they actually are madly in love with each other but they're still planning to go through this plan to separate, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, do you have any other final thoughts? Anything else to say or comment about this? Uh, thank you for coming on and being my, my guest. Hopefully this will be more of a regular thing. I'm not sure exactly what's going to be happening in the future. But did you have any other final thoughts about uh, the season as a whole? I will probably watch it a fourth time. And I look very forward to seeing what they have in store for season two. So thank you for having me on. This was a whole lot of fun. Um, I really enjoy talking about this kind of thing. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you.